Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I like that. <laughs> it's live effects. Really? Very high tech here. Uh, this is the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast. Hello. Kate. Episode 16. I'm Kate Skelsa. That's Vince Skelsa. Hello. Uh, we haven't done an episode in a while uh, because the world was ending. <laughs> was that the reason? And why? we yeah. had commitments. Yeah. And we're both very low energy people who live in separate states. Those are all the reasons, I think. Wow. We live in separate states? Yeah. And That's... we try and do it over the phone, and it doesn't, <laughs> no, doesn't we sound can't, good. We can't do it over the phone. And uh, um, separate states, though, sounds like oh. not just that you're in New York State and I'm in the state of New Jersey. It sounds like, you know, different... Uh, yeah. Different state uh, of confusion yeah. and state of denial. Oh, that's yeah. Freddie Skelsa. Uh, hello. 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 So, uh, this is episode 16. Thank you for those of you who have been listening and have emailed or written on Facebook to say you've been enjoying it and you've been uh, expecting a new episode. That's very nice. That's nice to know that people are enjoying these, mm -hmm. and uh, I apologize that it's taken us so long, but uh, it's free, so. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, on that subject, if you have been enjoying this podcast and you uh, would like to support us in some way, my book just came out in paperback. Oh. And now I... costs less than $10 anywhere books are sold. And it's called Fans of the Impossible Life. And if you buy a copy, you will be both uh, spiritually and karmically supporting me and also financially. Yeah. And you're you're a major part of this program. Yeah. This doesn't happen <laughs> unless I make you do it. Right. Exactly. So, so yeah. So, let's, let's support Kate, everybody. Go buy my book. Um, it's on Amazon and then also... You know, all the non-corporate, uh, independent places, bookstores should have it. If they don't, you can go and request it. That's good, too, because often they will order one for you and order another one that will go on the shelf. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's all very helpful. And it's not uh, it's called Fans of the Impossible Life. And it's, it's a novel. Yeah, it's for it's marketed for young adults, but it is also for adults. And it's a fun uh, spring-summer read. Uh, go buy some copies. There you go. Okay. Uh, you'll feel really good about yourself, and I will appreciate it. You can even tell me. Uh, I bought a copy, and I will write back and say, thank you so much. <laughs> so, okay, that's enough of plugging that. And we have uh, Freddie, my mother and Vin's wife here today with us because in the spirit of how 2017 has been going so far, I was inspired to take a, a small break from what we've been doing, which is going through uh, my dad's career chronologically. So the point of this podcast, if this is the first episode you're listening to, is to create a kind of 
oral history of your career as a DJ and as working in the music industry and in radio for how many years? 40, 50? 40, what did you do? Um, 48, 48, 47, 48 years. And yeah. looking at the history of radio and music in New York over the past 50-something years through that lens and then also playing these interviews th that you've done with all kinds of different people. So uh, we've been slowly making our way chronologically through talking about your career. And I wanted to go back right now and touch on uh, talk about something we touched on when we did the earlier episodes about WFMU, which is talking about uh, activism and politics in the 60s and 70s and what you both experienced um, through working in the radio station and just in your personal lives, because I think this is an interesting moment to be looking back at the last time this country went through such uh, large-scale protests and large-scale activism um, where the entire country was caught up in a, a movement, and it was very culturally significant. So, uh, you know, I went to the Women's March. Our family members were just at the march. As we're recording this, the March for Science was just yesterday. And... It's interesting to me that uh, a lot of people who wouldn't normally be thinking about these things, that the current political climate is forcing the issue. Mm. So we might cover some stuff here that if you've listened to the WFMU episodes, uh, I mean, that was years ago that we recorded them. But, uh, you know, apologies if we go over some material again. But just selfishly for me, I would... This is what I'm interested in talking about right now, and I thought some other people might be interested. So, yeah, I have, like, specific questions, but just with that in mind, and do you guys have, uh, you know, within F FMU, you were very involved in the protests, literally, like, the the culture of, of protest and of... I mean, did you even call it activism then? I fe that feels like a modern word to me. Mm. Uh, I think a, a big difference between then and now, between the 60s and now, was that the the world of, of um, protest started out very, very small and took several years to cross over into the mainstream. Um, you know, there were a lot of teach-ins. Blank-ins were like a big part of the 60s. You right. Know? There were all kinds of cultural ins, and uh, um, there were teach-ins. And I remember the first teach-in that I ever went to was when I was in college, before actually starting at FMU, um, learning some of the alternate history about the Vietnam War and what was going on there. This was while it was still happening. This is 1966. Right. You know, as it was, it, it was still not like a mainstream cultural thing that people were paying a lot of attention to, except for 
guys who were about to be drafted. Right. And I was I was coming up on that. Sixty uh, seven would have been. No, sixty eight. I forget when. My, right. My That's year was. what. May, I mean, it's funny because when we think about you know today something like the Vietnam War, you you know we wouldn't be drafting because we no longer have the draft, mm -hmm. our government could probably get away with having this foreign war that we, I mean, that's what we have, that everyone kind of knew about, but not really, but it wasn't personally implicating. I mean, it seems like the draft was the thing that made that personal because either, right, you were going to be drafted or your son or your brother or your husband, that it it became personal. It, there was There was no luxury of not paying attention at that point with that you know in in, in that way right uh, um i think what what i mean what i'm meaning to say is that with the current situation right from the get-go there was a huge mass movement up in arms about putting donald trump into the white house and having him be the president and and all of the things that he's done and intends to do and all of the people that he's put in there there was immediately tens of millions of people already aghast and up in arms it took several years to get to that point back in the 60s Everything was much more underground and much, it developed much slower. You know, that woman's march that you went to was, was right after the inauguration, right? I mean, it was. Yeah, like, the day after. Yeah, it was right. You know, that was inconceivable back then. Um, and then another big difference from the way I look at it is back then, for as dastardly uh, uh, a person as uh, Richard Nixon and and the other politicians of the day, they're looking good now. Were, huh? You know, not that they're looking good, but they were at least part of a kind of a tradition of of American politics. Whereas where where we are now is not part of any tradition. You know, this is like a brand new situation. But for I think us that's now. why he got elected. Was because it was it's 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 has a relationship to it truthfully has a relationship to where we are culturally more than anything else. He's a TV star. Mm. He's a he's he tweets. Yeah, he has no. It all of a sudden, all the lines have become blurred enough that well, why shouldn't we have a a guy who writes crazy crazy tweets as a president? That sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> I like watching that on TV. We we just watched uh, this uh, movie that Mike Judge made back in 2005 called Idiocracy. Mm -hmm. You know about that? Have you yeah, seen I haven't that seen film? it. I've heard of it. Oh, man. It's so right on. It's about a guy waking up in the future who's just a normal guy. He's just like an average guy. And he wakes up in, in uh, a thousand years from now. And and he winds up being like the smartest person on the planet. Yeah, just an average guy because the idiots have taken over completely, and it's <sighs> it's like so prescient, and it's all about reality television and and that whole um, put down of any kind of 
culture and literature and art and any of that civilization is just has been totally degraded yeah and uh this guy said he was just making a stupid comedy back yeah. then, but now he's got to look at it and have people tell him how prescient he was. I think the whole thing, I think ever since we hit the the um, millennium, uh, we've been, all all of our progress has been about trying to make the future look like what we thought it was going to look like in science fiction. You mean flying cars? Yeah, everything. I think that everything. I remember seeing a Backstreet Boys video in like, I mean, I guess it was for the Backstreet Boys still around in the late 90s. They mm-hmm. must have been. Yeah, yeah, sure they were. That was like the goofiest idea of futurism. But it was like, OK, but now it is the year 2000. This is what we should be wearing. I should look up what this video was. Just being like, oh, this is what it's going to be now. Like, it's beyond self-parody. It's like, this is a quote-unquote futuristic video. But the future is now. Mm-hmm. We should be wearing these future time clothes and living on the moon. But we know we don't have a sense of humor about it. It's not about any cultural representations of the future that that had an artist's sense of humor. Like now all of it is being taken literally. It should all look like all of this dystopian nonsense. We're like, no, no, that's good. Did you see? Oh my God, this was a great like stupid Facebook post. I think this is real. Talk about fake news (laughs) that McDonald's came out with these new. Okay. This is what I'm talking about. McDonald's came out with new uniforms for their employees that look like dystopian costumes from dystopian movies they're like all shades of gray with like these little caps and then it was you know buzzfeed or somebody was like putting them next to like the costumes from the hunger games and was like this is welcome to the dystopian future yeah they're like well this looks nice no this looks good this is how mcdonald's employees should dress and next your little you know your little soda will be delivered on a little flying hoverboard just because <laughs> like that's it's like about aesthetics anyway okay we're getting off track uh, oh the other thing i wanted to say that i think is interesting about what you're saying and i want to um my poor mom is sitting here while no, no, it's the people fine. in her life who never stop talking uh talk endlessly But what I wanted to say about this idea that there was such an immediate response against Trump and this idea of these big marches, I think some of the frustrations from the more marginalized groups was this idea of, oh, you all suddenly woke up? Because if you look at, you know, the history of protest in the past decade and protest around Black Lives Matter and, you know, protest around LGBTQ issues that people who had felt marginalized and been dealing with marginalization even under, you know, Obama was a great excuse for everyone to say, but I mean, yes, things are bad. All these bad things happen. But, you know, Obama's here, like good daddy's here and he's going to, he's probably taking care of it. But you can only say that if you weren't directly affected Mm. by, you know, 
a loved one being shot or, you know, uh, discrimination against you because you were transgender. So it's interesting to me, you know, it was interesting to me and you and I talked about this, mom. I was very disheartened after the women's march by the the echo chamber of the internet being like well this was done wrong and this is wrong and this whole thing is a mess and how dare any of you and just this level of criticism that felt like you know monday morning quarterbacking of and also like you ignorant straight white people get a clue and i'm i'm only sort of just in this moment really thinking about Right. This idea of the the resentment of, well, you had the luxury of waiting until the worst possible thing that you could imagine Mm. happened and that the kind of, you know, like and that it never would have happened, you know, like that white people never would have um, marched with black lives matter uh, uh, in in such big numbers as they did for the women's march or something like that do you know what i'm saying i mean we talked about this mom sure yes it has to affect you personally it has to get you off the couch which takes a lot and that's not different from the 60s and 70s because the real um the the real anti-war anti-nixon activism did not come until the 70s mhm it it came much later than we think we think of that activism as being part of the 60s but it really it was it was very limited in the 60s and that's what dad was saying was it was a movement that started actually out of the art movement with the beans and then the teachings and it was very limited and 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 it was also linked to um to the civil rights movement which was a much more major movement but um there was this, there was a separate kind of a, a, a racial divide there um, you know it it went it got to the point where when the Black Panthers came around there was this almost like are white people this is not your your fight right no, this is a black fight and, right. and uh, uh, but a lot of people a lot of white people you know a lot of college students white college students went down south and joined those groups that were um, working to get voter registration. And it was a couple of white guys as well as a, a black guy who were killed in that that one particular summer that I forget their names, the, the three of them, but they, you it know. It was on uh, the bridge in Selma, right? Wasn't that the, the whole thing? It was that period, yeah, yeah during the, the march, the Selma march. The yeah. Selma march. But it's... There was such a limited number of white people. I mean, there were white people involved. Right. There were certainly white people who cared. But when it came to the civil rights movement, 
it was a black-led movement. It was a, a, a there, there were black people out on the front lines and a couple of white students in with them. Did you feel like there was a divide when it came to an idea about anti-war and civil rights protesting and action that it was yeah how did that was there a divide there there was a divide and i think because at that point it got to be the black panthers when um late 60s late 60s which is when the anti-war movement started to gain momentum so late 60s, you had the anti-war movement gaining momentum. You had the um, black activists becoming more separatist, uh, more convinced that it wasn't going to work within the white system right. for them to get their rights. Right. Because what some people, I mean, I'm assuming an age of our listeners, but just in case there are people listening who don't know it any of this history who are maybe younger one of the fascinating things about the black panthers is that their their main main mission was community building was self-created community and that all of the trappings of what we associate with them the idea that they were armed the idea that they were separatists the idea you know that's all very showy and good for pictures but their mission was literally like feed the children in our community, make sure they have hot breakfasts, make sure that we are protecting our families and our people and taking care of our communities ourselves because the system has failed us. Well, another key thing here is the fact that throughout the 60s, we saw the, the murder of any leader, right, black or white, who was beginning to speak out to a more unified culture, whether it was um, uh, Bobby Kennedy. I know a lot of people, including your mother, don't trust Bobby Kennedy's uh, being reborn. We've put that behind us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you and Bobby? We, you know, we will not speak ill of the dad. Whether it was his rebirth he was a martyr. as a liberal you know, kind of bastion when he was running for president long after his attorney general days when he was uh, something other. Uh, Or it was Martin Luther King coming out and finally talking about the Vietnam War and saying this, there, there is, this is all part of the same thing. It was Martin Luther King who said that. Yeah. And then they killed him. Yeah. You know, Malcolm uh, X, Medgar Evers, John F. Kennedy. Right. So there was a long list. But I just want to get back for one second to what you said about the Black Panthers community building. Way back in, in our first conversation in one of these podcasts, you seemed surprised that on the radio that I was reading children's stories. Uh huh. That community building Uh, on wfmu that's what your show was right right on uh that community building and family family uh entities that were being uh trying to be brought together that the black panthers believed in 
the white activists did too. Right. And that was very, very important. That's why I believed I was going to be a teacher, which I was for a while. That's why I read to children on the radio, because there was nothing more important than the children coming up. And the white activists felt that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to that whole thing. But I think the important part of the Black Panthers was that they felt they could not do it within the white society as the white society has had been built up. Right. So, yeah. And and all the leaders were and, killed. And there there was there was an age barrier too. The the anti-war movement because as as we've said it, it directly affected young men for, right. for the most part. I mean, women were not being drafted. Men men young guys were being drafted and sent off to Vietnam and everybody knew somebody who had been terribly injured or killed there. Um, that was all initially a young person's movement. Older people still had that faith in America and that faith in, well, the president says it and right. is doing because it. Because it was a it's... post-World War II yeah, feeling still. of of our wars are just, yeah. our, we are the defenders of freedom. Right. So a big difference between Again, I, I point this out then and now is that immediately there was a cross generational, yes, as well as a, a, a racial and a, a gender unification of people aghast at the idea of Trump. Yes, you know, you didn't have to build from being right. being the long haired hippie afraid to walk down the street with your hair a certain length in certain parts of the the country. You didn't have to start out slowly trying to uh, change people's minds the way the way I had to with my my parents, especially my father. Right. You know, he was like just. It took a long time for him to come around, and it wasn't until well after you were born that he finally began to see what what lies he was being told by right. by the people who he trusted and, and believed in. Well, they had built, that generation had built entire lives around believing that they should trust the government. Government got, you know, they got got them out of the Great Depression. Yeah. They, they saved the world. They bought the houses and... in the suburbs that they were supposed to buy, and they got married, and they had children, and they built businesses because the government said this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Right, and they had gone they had seen the great depression as children. Yeah. So you don't re just recover from that. I mean, if the government got you out of that, then how bad can it be? Um one of the things that was fascinating was at the women's march was the diversity of age and that I was not expecting was how many people in their 50s and 60s were there um, and people saying that, you know, the last time I marched was mm. in the 60s and mm -hmm. that from them there was an attitude of, yeah, I know how to march. I'll do this. Mm -hmm. You know, that there was a basis of activism that is a given in this country because culturally 
we have come to value culturally so much what the 60s and 70s meant. And I think there's such a romanticization, romanticization, mm -hmm. romanticizing mm -hmm. of... It's good enough. <laughs> I, I think one of those is a word. They're both words, I think. Yeah, there's some words. Of that period culturally. And, and that's also because, right, like your generation grew up to be the the people who were like oh remember the six you know oh woodstock <laughs> you know this thing of almost uh, that being almost too precious and too um divorced even from politics so i wonder if what's happening right now and and what i hope can happen and what that moment of the women's march gave me that hope that this could happen is to reinsert politics into what culturally we have looked at in the 60s as as maybe kind of neutered and sweet or or even just aesthetics the idea that the black panthers um are possibly could have been reduced to a kind of aesthetics in history and that this is a moment to say no 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 we this is what we really meant i mean it's great that that moment is preserved because aesthetically it was important in the country's history but right like and we've talked about woodstock before and how you were like well that's the end of that's the end of all of this yeah. this is literally the commodification of any counterculture exactly movement. and it and woodstock certainly had nothing to do with what we're talking about here Right. Woodstock was a music festival. Right. And that was But it. the but the musicians who appeared there were very important to yes. the counterculture movement. Yes. But yes. there was nothing political. No. About it. There was nothing political about it. Yeah. Well, there, there were people there who tried to make it political. I mean, Abby Hoffman was there and Wavy Gravy and people right. like that, but they were mostly shouted down and they were they were they were bumming out the crowd, man. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but but that brings us to the seventies, which was by the time Richard Nixon was was found out to be a crook. I am not a crook, but he was found out to be a crook. Then the the counterculture and the negative feeling started to gather storm. Right. And along with that, the um, government started shooting people who were, were out there demonstrating. They started shooting demonstrators. Right, because when did Kent State Kent happen? State was 70. 70. I think it was 70. Yeah. Yeah, 1970, and that was followed by two other major shootings right. in demonstrations. And one of the things that has warmed the cockles of my heart no end is how peaceful, how extraordinarily peaceful these demonstrations have been. No matter how many people have shown up, no matter what part of the country, and in the Women's March, no matter what part of the world they've shown up, they've been peaceful. Well, but then there are the people who criticize that, saying that that is, that the police 
take a different attitude towards something called a women's march than they would towards something called a Black Lives Matter rally, which, you know, I my experience at the women's march, I mean, it's also one of the things that was hard looking at people's reactions to the march was it was such a big march in D.C. So anyone there was ha- could have a totally different experience. You know, you could have been in a part of that march where people were being disrespectful, where you felt like there was, you know, uh, something going on that was not showing the proper reverence for the city, you know, or whatever. And my experience was that it, you know, I had this instinct. There, there, we had this funny experience of we were not able to get to where the main rally was happening in the beginning because there were just so many people. So we were down a side street and we got as close as we could to a speaker just so we could hear. And packed in. I mean, very, and I'm a claustrophobic person. So if it had not been peaceful, if the vibe had not been, we're all just quietly standing here. We're listening respectfully. We're standing here for hours. I could not have been there. So, and there was a an armored armored truck parked in the middle of this and um two guys who you know were not armed but had on like i i think they had on you know bulletproof vests were on the top kind of looking around and watching the scene and uh one of them seemed to be taping everything with his or taking pictures with his phone <laughs> and because you know we've discussed before that as the child of 60s radicals i'm very suspicious of such things i'm oh he's he's recording he's getting you know face recognition this is ridiculous and the longer we stood there people started handing him their phones for him to take pictures of them <laughs> from the top of the truck and by the time we left his area, he had a stack of phones and iPads that people were reaching, you know, he was very high up, were reaching, and he was reaching down to take their picture. And so it was very sweet. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was just that the cutest thing lovely. you've ever seen. But then part of me was like, no, man, don't, no, don't give him your iPod. Fuck that guy. Was, was you he know, was he police or or army? He was an army dude. Yeah. He was in fatigues. Mm. He was on an army truck, and so that some. I mean, the only time we when we got to the White House, there was a line of uh, riot police keeping you from going down the street to the White House, and uh, it was very satisfying to see that. Because there was almost a sense for me of, oh, are we not a threat to you? Mm. <laughs> Is this not threatening to you? Yeah. Because it should be. That's right. It, That's right. It should be. But, but in, reading, in reading some of the Monday morning quarterbackers who were saying... Oh, you think this is a march? Is that a sp- is that the correct sports term? I realize I introduced a sports term into this. Yes. I don't think I've ever done that before. Yes, that's the correct. Because sport- Sunday you have a football game. That, 
Mm-hmm. How do you know that? Is that true? It is. And then Monday morning, yes. you have, oh, they should and have done this. And you know what a quarterback is? No. Yeah. <laughs> that's the guy who calls the play. sports ball. Yeah. Okay, continue. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so what was I going to say? But there is Monday. Uh, people, people, to, it... uh, people who want to be naysayers the day after. You know, everybody has an opinion. And, and the biggest difference between now and 50 years ago is the internet. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, you'll excuse the expression, uh, you had to write a letter to the newspaper. And if you were lucky, your letter got in a week later because you were writing to the East Village other because nobody else cared about these marches. You mean to like announce a march? To announce a march or to say, I don't like the way the march went because the the, uh, army guys were taking pictures and we should have a more serious attitude. Right. And And that's where radio, alternative radio, listener-sponsored radio, Bob Fass in New York, WBAI, um, Radio Enameable, to a a lesser extent what we were doing at FMU in, in New Jersey, that's where radio became really important because... You could respond instantly if if right. if you got on the the air over the phone, you know um, that's what Fast was famous for doing. Every night was whatever happened during the day. He had people calling up who were there, who I witnessed it, and it were was reporting the Twitter it. of its day. Yeah, it, yeah. Well, it was. Yeah. It was the Internet of its day. It really yeah. was. Yeah. I so, mean, the other thing I, d- I want to say is I also I do think that the fact that the demonstrations are so safe and happen without incident is actually what allows them to be inclusive and is allowing people who would not normally participate feel safe in participating. So I I don't mean to say that it's not a good thing that this is safe. And I think also normalizing protest is r- a really good thing. And uh but it 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 was interesting to me yeah. to feel like a threat but not be seen as a threat mm. felt i mean maybe that's motivating maybe it's motivating to say well all right i'm i'm still you know you might not be scared of me but maybe you should i mean maybe you felt a little invisible i talk about feeling invisible here there were a million of you, and you still felt like you weren't being seen because you weren't being seen as a threat. But just that that peacefulness means that cousins Joe and Nina were able to bring their children yeah. to the the science march and feel totally comfortable doing that. And the children's involvement in the marches is is pretty cool. It's I mean, cool. In it's general, important. It's pretty amazing. It's it gives us all hope for the future, because what's going to happen is in thirty years, right? They're going to be interviewing it their all... parents. <laughs> well, when it all cycles back again, then they will have a history of protest to That's call right. on. That's right. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah, I think the key word was just mentioned by you, which is cycle. 
Yeah. There are people right now um, who who don't think in terms of this being part of a cycle. Um, and, and those are the ones who are really being driven crazy and bananas by looking at the the newspapers every day or looking at the internet or the TV news or whatever, you know, because they just don't, they, they, they're not looking at the larger picture, which is that this too shall pass. Yeah. They right. can't conceptual, uh, con- they can't contextualize, contextualize. it. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, and I'm not sure every day is different for me. Some days I feel yeah. like, oh my God, this is the end of the world. Well, the, cl- I mean, when he's, I mean, well, I, I yeah, bookmark that for a second cuz um what uh, my question about all right, bookmark the end of the world for a minute everybody. Right, I'll, um, I'll bookmark that. Uh <laughs> write down. The end, end of, of the world. world. Remember it's remember the, the end. it's not the end of the world is what you said. Remember the end of the world. Okay. Note to self. Note yes. to Siri, self. take a note. <laughs> I just did that uh, in the car, and it works. It's no. so creepy. Talk about the future. You talked about to Siri? And- I said Siri, and I had her, when I texted you, Siri did that. I said, oh. Siri, text mom. And Siri said, what would you like me to text mom? No. And I said, there's some traffic. She did it very well. And then she did, I mean, I have Siri said as a he, oh. as a man. Really? Because I want to tell a man what to do. Oh. <laughs> this is so creepy. See, isn't it nice that my parents think I'm amusing? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, oh, okay. So what I want to say about this cycle thing is, uh, yeah, listening to you guys talk about the way things were then and this idea of Martin Luther King saying, you know, this is all the same issue. This is civil rights, anti-war. This is, we are unified in a mission here. Uh, And when I look back at what went on then, I get such a sense of something being built, right? And something that feels, in hindsight, inevitable, that our country would go through this cultural shift, that this would be successful in in certain ways and in ways of really transforming this country culturally. Um, Not to say that civil rights are not still an issue, not to say that, you know, uh, everything got solved or anything, but you can underestimate the, the huge cultural transformation that this country went through because of that time. And it's almost the way I feel about, queer and lgbtq rights now where whenever we come up against another hurdle it's work right it's work that needs to be done but you almost have the sense of like all right this you know 10 years from now this is gonna look so embarrassing like we're just sitting this out we're just gotta like what else what's the next hurdle but it feels inevitable it feels like something is being built you're breaking down these walls and I wonder if you guys felt that in that moment, if there was a sense of this is inevitable, what we're doing here. And also, if one of the things that's so frustrating about this moment is it feels like such a step backwards and such a step against progress that it's it 
it's a reactionary thing. So like we were talking about that then this thing had to be built, right? There had to be consciousness raising that happened. There had to be like, okay, I get it. Yeah, we have to like, this is almost like a a, a tree we have to grow. Mm-hmm. And now it's like someone came along and like cut down your tree. And you're like, what did you just do? You know, that that's the, the strength of the reaction of what's happening right now is, is, is shock rather than, and, and it's, it's hard to feel optimistic about it because it's like, my tree is gone. Mm-hmm. So and it's, it's going to take a really long time yeah. to regrow this yeah, tree. It took a long time to grow it. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. put a lot of work into it. And, uh, yeah, I think that, that because it wasn't reactionary in the 60s, the reactionaries in the 60s were the, the other side. You know what, what? 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 What we were doing was changing, yeah, thought and changing the process, and yeah, I was I was not aware at all back then of of um, the of thinking oh this could all go away or whatever your I forget now what your did question you was, feel but... like I mean obviously you guys felt like you were on the right side of history yeah but did you feel like it was inevitable that you were like it's just a matter of time but we're gonna win this oh, cultural yeah. war mm-hmm. oh we, we were gonna win we were we felt very empowered and and that's an important word because I feel like the marchers now, the people who are making the phone calls now, the people who are writing uh, their congressmen now, the people who are out there trying to change who's representing them now, that those people feel empowered because you have to. There's no other choice. You either feel empowered or you feel beaten down completely which is how we get back to what dad said about uh, the end of the world, mm. that that those people who don't feel empowered feel like they're looking smack dab at the end of the world. Right. Well, it's hard to feel empowered because there is actually only so much that you can do. Well, that comes to the point that I've made to a couple of people recently who've said to me I feel like I'm looking at the end of the world and what I've said to them is do what you can do if you're an artist you make your art and you make your statement if you're a teacher you teach if you're a retired person like dad and I are then you make the phone calls to your representatives and and make yourself feel empowered. Make yourself feel like you're doing something. I started teaching English as a second language because that makes me feel empowered. Right. And I'm enjoying it thoroughly, too. Well, and there's something to be said for opening your mind about what is contributing in a positive way. There maybe isn't anything we can do about what the president does tomorrow, but you can be, you know, interacting with the world in a way that is energetically helpful and positive and correct. Right. That right. even exactly. in your own, that if everyone did that, then 
the world would be a much better place. And that's one of the things that's interesting about the protests is I, you know, I, I marched the, in the big New York city March after the election. And then the women's March were the two big ones that I've been to. And they were both really exhausting. You know, it took me days afterwards to, and very, I felt very depressed after them because it did feel like, well, this is this huge energetic joining of people who are well-intentioned and who want so desperately to make a difference. And well, now what, what did that accomplish? Then they all went home and you were left alone. And then it's everyone. What did we just do? And one of the things it's a big, it's an incredible high, those things. Yeah, just because that energy of those intentions and those people is very um, powerful. And one of the things a friend said to me, because I was saying, okay, so back to the end of the world, is what terrifies me about something like we're going to, talk about the mother of all bombs mm-hmm. right we're gonna and use that terminology and make sure it's the biggest bomb ever and then his bullshit about i was eating a piece of chocolate cake when i ordered the it's like this is a pr nightmare you know for me what's most horrifying and most convincing the days that i think it's the end of the world are to have your country feeding a, an idea in the rest of the world that we are the most selfish, uneducated, idiotic, you know, cowboy cliches that are literally like Dr. Strangelove, like riding the bomb home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like a parody of a parody of insanity to so what's the i mean obviously the most upsetting thing about bombs is bombs but to then have to face the idea that you're being represented your country is being represented that way and to be put in further danger by giving uh credence to that image of us in the world and that what my friend said to me was well then you have to look at the protests as a way of of declaring we do not all feel this way Mm -hmm. so that if a big march makes it onto the news in another country or if in another country there is a sister march or if you know you think about um the culture of protest in Russia right now and the fact that like, you know, Pussy Riot and those artists have made their way to us in a way that makes us understand people in Russia are not okay with what's happening there, that there is. So that was helpful to Mm -hmm. me, but it's still, you can't control like, okay, is there a big story in you know, France today about this protest, like, is it making its way into the rest of the world how upset we are? Yeah, I don't think you you can worry about, you can worry about that, really. It doesn't do any good to worry about it, and you can't control it. And, hell, there's a, there's a similar thing going on throughout Europe. 
right now right. this this similar kind of national nationalism and uh uh return to right wing values and anti um immigration and there you know there's there's brexit in 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 right. in england and and this weekend there's the danger that uh, uh when when this finally is on the internet that there's a a right wing president of of france um and you know there's talk about this happening in germany now as well you know it's like that's another reason to sort of look at the larger picture i think is that there we're not alone in this happening when there's something about what's happened to the world and it's got a lot to do with with the 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 people who were migrating whether they're escaping bombs or politics or or climate change or whatever you know those people who were refugees refugees right who were trying to get some something more uh, more livable conditions into their lives uh that's causing a backlash right in, there's a closing uh, off in of... a, in a lot of the western world right now yeah and and that to me at least says that we're not alone in this that that and i'm I not sure the, if that does any good i think <laughs> the I the know. other countries have to understand that we have this situation because they're in the same situation mm. and they probably like it just as little as we do i mean right it's it's not that we're alone okay well one of the things i wanted you to talk about a little more mom and i know we had talked about before was the women's consciousness raising group that you were a part of and i was just interested in uh how that was organized and what form it took well it was organized by the national organization of women and it was a six degrees of separation kind of thing although yeah. that term didn't exist and somebody knew somebody and between somebody knowing somebody and somebody else knowing somebody else, you'd get about eight or ten women in a living room. But it was an organized thing by the National Organization of Women that you should have, you should meet in living rooms with other women and talk about these issues. Yeah, and there were usually chocolate chip cookies, so oh, yeah, people so. showed up. Yeah. <laughs> also, the husbands had to watch the babies if they had babies, so... Right. The women showed up. I mean, here's another thing about when it's up to women, they bring excellent snacks. Yes. I mean, I was yes, in D.C. I was in D.C. at an Airbnb <laughs> with three other women, and I've w there's never been so much food in one place. <laughs> you didn't ever. starve. We each packed an extra suitcase of snacks. <laughs> I mean, then the snack conversations... And then we all packed our little, you know, fanny packs for the next day. And they yeah. all, how many protein bars are we bringing? What, you know, we have a clip on, clip on water bottles. Yeah. yeah see, guys never, never think no. that far ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I, <laughs> I've never. To the next meal. <laughs> I mean, gender is a construct, but sometimes yeah. Yeah. women 
just bring better snacks. There were good snacks. Okay. Let me put it that way. There were good snacks. Um, in our group, there were terrific women. And when did it start? Do you remember around what year that you were going? Um, 70. We were living in Montclair. I think we moved to Montclair, so, so it was 73. 73. It How was old were you? 73. So I was 25. Mm-hmm. And um, my good friend who I still love and keep in touch with, Carol Siegel, uh, she was actually the person who invited me to be involved. And um, every week we would meet. At, it would go to a different person's house each week. We would have a topic. There were suggested topics. Mm-hmm. Somebody from National Organization of Women came out to the first meeting, came out um maybe four to eight meetings later and sat in on a meeting and each person had a a specific amount of time to talk on the topic and you could say anything you wanted oh interesting so you would it be timed you would sort of go around the circle and everyone had five minutes or something yes yeah, I think it was yeah, it was three to five minutes. And were were there rules like you when someone speaks and it's not a conversation, they it's this is just their time to speak and don't interrupt them? Uh yes. I don't remember if there was any question answer or any discussion. It was about how you were feeling. So it was like an organized group therapy almost. That was exactly what it was like. Yeah without a leader Mm -hmm. and there were very specific topics what were some of the topics or what what was the vibe of some of them do you remember no i i don't i mean at this point they probably would would feel very ordinary but at that point like motherhood or yeah only it would be more specific yeah it would be it would be I think uh, there were gender things that came out of it, like who does what in the house if you're living with, uh, you know, a husband or a mate or whatever. Um, I remember... Dad's going to mansplain it. Yeah. Yeah, mansplain. Thank you. Well, he he, he never but, knew how I was going to come home after uh, one of these meetings. But <laughs> I would, that is I would, scary. Yeah, I would come home being like, right. oh, you're the best husband and we have the best relationship or i would come home and be like you heal you sob right you that's good but i have very specific memories of (laughs) he has memories of staying staying up all night after one of these meetings having mom tell me what went down yeah and then using that to spark a conversation between us. Yeah. So you were, and, inter- were you jealous that you didn't get to go? Were you like. Uh, no, I didn't want to go. But, but you was, were interested in what interested. they were talking about. Oh, yeah, sure. I have to break in. Yes. Because one of the rules, one of the hard and fast rules was you could not bring what somebody else said outside the room. Uh-huh. So what I brought back to you was my feeling. What, what you Your did. own thoughts yes. right. about it. Yeah, right. you didn't. Yeah. I, I didn't come and say. You know what this person said, and right. that right. none no, of that. No, but what it sparked no. in you, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder if you had any sense that other women in the group who were living with guys or women, I, but probably guys in that day, 
whether they were bringing home. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they, were they discussing with their husbands? Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. they reported that. I guess the kind of the kind of woman who was going to be interested in doing that in the first place was going to have a certain attitude of sharing with her spouse. Well, maybe I don't I don't know. Maybe that would have more to do with the relationship with the spouse. Mm. Did you feel like it was a group of similarly aged women of similarly women with similar backgrounds or or was it kind of all over the place very much similar age yeah we were all living in the same town so but there was economic diversity because some people owned their own homes some very nice homes actually and some of us were renting small apartments yeah and at the time we were renting a small apartment this was in montclair so in terms of economic diversity, there was there was more of that than age diversity. Backgrounds, uh, you know, similar, to a certain extent, similar backgrounds. Yeah, and mostly white people. I think everyone in the group was white. Um, everyone was straight. College educated? Not all college educated. Not all from the area originally. Mm -hmm. Quite a few of them had moved to the area. Well, and it's a bit of a self-selecting group in a situation like that because you're getting invited by someone else to come in. So you're everyone knew at least one other person when they That's arrived. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, although Margie, my my sister, ha you know she's your my sister. She's your aunt. Yes, I've met yes, her. Yes, you've met her. Yes. Um, she... She just uh, saw an ad. Oh, interesting. And so she went to a group that was being formed by an ad. And I think the dynamics of that maybe would have been much different than the dynamics of my group. Yeah, because so there it wasn't, it had more of a therapy vibe than a debate vibe. There oh, yeah. wasn't ever like heated conversations or. No, no. No, never. That wasn't the point. No. To debate. No. There was definitely some people who did not get along very well. You sure. could feel it, but there would not be debates. And how long were did you do it for? I don't remember. It was probably at least a year. Yeah. Uh, I think it was even more than that. I, I feel like I won't. Maybe a year and a half. I don't think it was many years. It was probably under two, between a year and two years. And did you feel like it accomplished the mission for you of what, of, I mean, what do you think the mission was supposed to be of, of the idea of organizing these groups? And did you feel like it accomplished that for you? I think that the mission was to make us feel empowered. It was to empower women. What it accomplished for me, it established a community for me of like-minded people. And it did empower me to a certain extent. And it opened my eyes to certain ideas. So, yeah, I think it was very successful. Yeah. 
It's interesting. I, I didn't know that it was organized by by now. Yeah. That it was an official It was an actual countrywide official thing. thing. It um I think it was the local chapters that would do it. And frankly, the the person who came out to get us started, um, she got us started, but her who she was didn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. She did not put her stamp on the group at all. Mm-hmm. And even though you don't remember what the topics were, do you, did they seem to be about, were they personal and political? Was it, do you think it was really focusing on your role as a woman in the home, your role as a woman in the workplace, rather than women's rights on a global scale was that was it about making it personal do you yes think? it was totally personal yeah there was nothing that felt global about it at all but through the through the discussion it became more global because once we as women started to feel empowered it enabled us to make decisions in our lives now a lot of these women were um homemakers right and probably as a result of of this these meetings they sought careers had successful extraordinary extraordinarily successful careers yeah some of them left unhappy marriages right as a result of these conversations yeah, I think I'm glad that you're using the word empowerment because I think that's not something we talk about so much and that's really the key. If you feel like you have something to say and a reason to say it and a way to say it and a way to implement it in your own life that has a meaning for you, then that has a relationship to what's going on in the world. That's kind of all you can ask for. When was the the Equal Rights Amendment, the activity and the voting on that? I, was that I, later on in I the seventies? I think it was like seventy eight, but I'm I wouldn't swear to it. Yeah, so Kate, it, yeah, it, that. it was not when you were in the the, the consciousness raising group. I think it was after. Yeah. I'm I'm almost certain. And was there any was there anything as long as we're talking about the, this group? Was there any um? Uh, conversation. Nineteen seventy-two. Seventy-two. Yeah, but uh, oh, originally. Yeah, but it, but it, didn't, it didn't pass. Oh, hold on. It, it, they kept trying to pass it, and it went on for That's a bunch so. of years. Uh, oh, right. In the years since the ERA failed to ratify. Oh, seventy-nine. Yeah. That sounds more like it. Eighty-two. Yeah. It's yeah. still dead. The it's... resolution of Congress extended the ratification deadline to. June thirtieth, nineteen eighty-two. I don't think it ever passed. It has still hasn't <laughs> no, it never, passed. No, it never it passed. Still hasn't oh right, passed. right. Oh, you mean so I'm when? Sorry. Right, right. It never passed. It still <laughs> hasn't passed because but you why mean, would when you did, give? When was it? When was the conversation it about it happening? Started in seventy-two. So yeah. It was yeah, about the same time. Passed both houses of Congress in nineteen seventy-two and was submitted to the state legislatures for ratification. Yeah, and that's when it ran into trouble. Yeah. 
Um, uh, just one other question that I have about the consciousness raising groups. Was there a talk of sexuality in the groups? Yes. Remember there was the whole thing about like a lot of women didn't know how to have orgasms or that they were even allowed to have orgasms. You know, it's like... There was talk of sexuality yeah. in the group. Okay. That was one of the topics. Now I'm uncomfortable now. Okay. Well, I, I, you know... I'm just, just kidding. There was, <laughs> there was a time when that was like... Uh, no, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a valid point that part of what... And, and what gets kept when I'm talking about, like, the, the culture of the 60s and 70s becoming depoliticized in our memories... That what you remember is like Summer of Love, Woodstock, rolling around in mud together. You remember the sexual revolution. That that's that's much more fun to remember. Mm -hmm. But that was a part of it. Yeah. And that was a motivating factor in this whole thing. In in Mad Men, there was a... a no, not in Mad Men. In uh, Masters of Sex, there was a five-minute side note about going to a woman's consciousness raising group and what are they doing they're looking at their vaginas in the mirror mm. so that's to everybody right that's what it that's was that's what everybody talks about when they talk about consciousness raising groups right but what we talked about yes we talked about sex but we talked about who does the laundry who takes out the garbage right who uh have you been pregnant what was that like oh you had a miscarriage let's talk about that right would you talk about abortion in the group absolutely yeah um these were all things that were taboo yeah it was creating a safe space for especially because and you've talked about this before that even within radical uh, lefty environments that thought they were being very forward thinking about gender roles, women were women's voices were often not raised up or honored or listened to, and that you often felt that, right? Am I putting oh, yes. words in your mouth? No, no, that's those are the words. That even, yeah, forward thinking lefty guys were, you know, mansplaining progressive politics to the women who were still expected to sit in the corner quietly and well they were expected to make the coffee and yeah and you know bake the cookies and, yeah so to have a, a space where there were only <laughs> they're both laughing <laughs> they're both silently <laughs> laughing well because the cookies were really good then yeah. <laughs> oh I see. yeah was there wine at these meetings what kind of yeah there yeah, was yeah. There was wine. There were special there cookies. Special cookies. Yeah. Um, you're done. You're ready to... What? Yeah, I've done, I think... I've, I mean, if you have some more specific points you want to get to... Uh, yeah, I just have... Well, though, what I'd like to end with um, is... Yeah, if people want to hear more about all of these things, specifically in relationship to what you guys were experiencing at WFMU... And what that year or so of your lives was like and and around these issues, um, they can listen to the earlier episodes that are called History of WFMU. But I'm wondering, Dad, because your relationship to these issues was so much a part of your getting into radio and really investing 
in the in WFMU and in being a part of that, that it was a politicized entrance into what then became your career. Did you have? Do you think I I I mean I know what I think the answer to this question is, but what do you think you carried with you from? that entrance from that politicized entrance and that politicized experience of being at WFMU into the rest of your career? I think you do know the answer, which is that I always carried the politics with me and and the politics, which frequently came down to who's controlling what I do on the radio, um, always took uh, the, the, the full weight over and above the career. I mean, that's why I, I... You sometimes didn't have a career. Yeah, you know, that's why I left stations is because it was important to me. That was where I always made my stand, and it was always... It, it always felt akin to how I felt about power and authority that goes back to my my days as uh, you know being aware of the civil rights movement and working in high school in my senior high school with the civil rights groups in Bayonne and and then the anti-war movement and all that yeah it was all part of the same thing and you know after 1982 I mean I still had a, a whole lengthy couple of decades in radio but I I didn't work full-time anymore um because I didn't want to play the games and I didn't want to do the playlists and I didn't want to have somebody else control my 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 show. So yeah, there's a direct relationship between politics and and what I did with my career. Mm-hmm. And luckily I was able to have a career and and always find a place that was willing to put me on the air a couple of days a week. But I was never the you know, after 1982 I was not the main breadwinner in in this family right you know your mother was and i thank her for that always you know i couldn't have had my career after 82 um without that all right yeah well thank you both for going over all of that i think it's very uh relevant to this moment I feel a little better, actually, yeah. having, having heard you speak. And I feel uh, better having heard you guys speak. Okay. I think it is really helpful, as you know, what you're saying about looking at the big picture mm. and not not feeling alone in geographically, but also not feeling alone in time. You know, to look at these other struggles that people who are still alive went through you know i mean that's and that's why i I want to talk to you guys about these things is i think it's a huge privilege to be able to say how did this go down last time even though it was different even though the circumstances were different Mm. how how did how did this happen how did this how did you navigate this because even though we have the internet and the age does feel so different it's it doesn't help to act like we're having to reinvent the wheel right when 
so much has been accomplished and and I worry about the kids today <laughs> because I mean it's exciting to feel like this has never happened before I must invent it from nothing you know that's a very youthful exciting thing but to understand the history of protest in this country and to let it give you context. I mean, one of the things that makes me crazy about the Monday morning quarterbacking is when it's done without political, historical context, without, I mean, because the internet discourages anything that goes deeply into anything, which is why something like this, where we can talk and we can, you know, someone can listen to it and turn it off when they're done <laughs> driving or whatever. You know, I mean, I think the nice thing about podcasts and about this format is it it allows to go in depth with these kind of things in a way where you click on something that you want to read for 30 seconds and then you're bored. Cannot. Mm-hmm. And it's part of what I've always loved about the tradition of folk music. And the phrase um, links in the chain, you know, that that there are certain people in in folk music who are the links in the chain of socio-cultural, political um, enlightenment and 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 protest and upheaval. And, you know, it, it it's not something that got invented in 1965 or in 1978 or, you know, whatever. It goes back a long ways in this country. Right. And, and uh, you know, that's a thing that I've always loved about the music. Well, and the more that you can link those links and mm-hmm. recognize what those links are and look at the influences, the more you're recognizing the ways in which the history of African-American music, uh, 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 you know, influenced other folk singers, the more, you know, anytime you're like, oh, this person showed up out of the blue and invented something, mm-hmm. you're doing a disservice to a, a greater cultural understanding of where things came from. You know, it's very dangerous to say, Nothing like this has ever existed before. You know, something, anything. Mm-hmm. Nothing, Lady Gaga has just came out of nowhere. Well, no, she didn't. Yeah. You know, first came Madonna. Then before that came this. Then, you know, and and so then you get like a single, you get into this area of single narrative about not looking at, at where we came from and what was wrong with it. You know, what got stolen, what got, what didn't get credit for years. And and so I think the deeper you delve into history and into these stories and into acknowledging influences, the messier it gets, but the the more important it is. Mm-hmm. What well, and and that sort of can lead us to what we're going to do with our next podcast, yes. which is go back to um, a time that I spent on the radio with uh, the great folk singer and civil rights activist uh odetta yes yeah we're gonna play uh i'm really a, excited a, a slight interview with odetta and awesome. we'll do that next time around here on the kate and vin skelsa podcast today the kate and freddie and vin skelsa podcast today thank you for joining us mom thank you for inviting me and uh yeah thanks for listening okay bye 
This is Kate. Just a quick postscript to the episode that you just listened to. When we uh, checked Wikipedia afterwards, we found out that the consciousness raising groups were not organized by the National Organization of Women, but by a group called New York Radical Women. Um, and there's a pretty interesting Wikipedia entries about New York Radical Women and about the groups themselves. So go check that out. Uh, but because we're talking about history, we just wanted to make the correction and make sure we were giving credit to the right people. Thanks for listening. Bye.